0: Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us.
1: Good morning, um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and in the studio we have Jacob, um, and then Zane just arrived.
2: Just in the nick of time. Alright. Morning.
1: And I um, okay, guess before we announce what's coming up in our program and um, get into sort of... Some of the headline news that has been happening in this past week. Um, I like to acknowledge um, that Free CR is being broadcast to you um, from the Wondry land of the Kulin Nations. Um, I like to pay my respect um, to elders, past and present, and that this always will be, um, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right. Um. So we have a pretty there's actually going to be quite a, probably a lot of news to discuss, um, I mean, especially from the recent events that have happened in Parliament. The events. Yeah. The well, things. Yeah, so there's been a lot of things happening, um, well, mainly in the circus that is in Parliament, but um, but we also have some news on the international front um, and also some other um, articles that we'll be discussing in terms of, you know, the kind of people-powered kind of struggles and, and so on, because I think, you know... It's, It's important not to forget about, you know, the struggles of, you know, people um, organising and fighting against oppression, while most of us are probably distracted by what's happening in the Parliament right now. (laughs) So, that's... um, So, for the first interview, we're going to be having an interview with um, a Socialist Alliance member called Steve O'Brien, who wrote an article in the latest Green Left Weekly about, you know, why socialists um, should run in elections or... And so we're going to have a bit of discussion with him about that. And then we have um, John Passant, who's a socialist, um, regular writer of his own blog. Um, He's based in Canberra, so we'll probably have a bit of a discussion, uh, um, some political analysis of, you know, what kind of things that are happening, the the kind of political situation that's sort of happening in in the state, in the federal parliament right now. Anyway, just to give a quick update on that, actually, um, although we'll probably be talking about it later on, um, at this point, um, there will potentially be a leadership meeting um, that will challenge Malcolm Turnbull for for leadership. Well, Peter Dutton is, Um, but apparently he, I've just read the latest sort of headline kind of news in the Guardian, and basically, apparently, um, he needs forty three signatures of. Get other par- other federal MPs and who are in the federal parliament to sign um, to be able to convene a kind of me- a meeting that challenges Turnbull for leadership. At this point, um, Peter Dutton has only clicked has only forty at this point, uh, so he will have to get the remaining three names by midday, um, and then by twelve o'clock that's when presumably the meeting will happen, and then we'll find out whether we have either Peter Dutton. Julia Bishop or Scott Morrison as Prime Minister. Um, and um, I think, you know, it would be, I think all, all those scenarios, I think by far the worst scenario would probably be Peter Dutton. Um, then Scott Morrison and Julia Bishop are just as horrible, terrible, terrible people, I think, as well. I mean, probably listeners should know that, you know, Scott Morrison was the former Immigration Minister um, who before Peter Dutton and, you know, responsible for managing and a lot of the kind of ta- offshore detention camps. And Julie Bishop, well, she actually spent her life defending... Um, defending um, James or, Hardy. James Hardy, the company uh, of, against asbestos ric- um, victims from having um, c- proper compensation. So mm. that's just the kind of, you know, people that are kind of running our parliament right now
2: mm yes, one of the things that uh occurred to me many many moons ago nearly a decade ago now the uh the rudd the the first rudd government tried to implement the carbon pollution reduction scheme the c p r s and the climate movement at the time, which was a lot more active than it is now. Opposed the CPRS because it put a 5% limit on emissions reductions between 2010 and 2020. And the movement said this is bad news because if uh, people put solar panels on their roof and they ride their bike more or whatever, and people at an individual level reduce their emissions because of this cap on a maximum reduction of emissions, um, that would just allow polluters to pollute more, and the Australia Institute released a paper to this effect, and uh, the Greens, there was substantial debate in the climate movement. Anyway, fast forward a few years, and you've got people from the Labor Party and certain people from the environment movement saying, oh... The Greens were wrong to oppose the CPRS back in 2009, because if that had got up, um, then we would have had this carbon trading thing in place, and by the time Abbott got in, it would have been there for so long that that they couldn't possibly have got rid of it. I think that the, uh, the coup against Turnbull, and it's not just about energy policy, it's about other issues as well. Turnbull is supposedly too left-wing for the uh, conservatives of the <laughs> Liberal Party. <laughs> He's such a such a lefty like a- Oh, I
1: mean, Bronwyn Bishop on on Sky News just called him. Said he was basically a socialist. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I wish. I mean, if 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 Mark Malcolm Turnbull was actually a genuine socialist, I'm sure I would be organising. You know protest outside Parliament in in solidarity in support of Turnbull against this leadership challenge. But no he's not. So Mm.
2: (laughs) But but a big factor in getting rid of Turnbull is that he was trying to introduce this national energy guarantee and it had some measly tiny Um, gesture towards renewable energy. It was a rubbish policy, Mm. but even that was too much for the Duttons and the Abbots and the Conservatives in the Liberal Party. Even that was conceding too much to the supposed renewable energy lobby. So I think part of the coup against Turnbull this week is um, it sort of says this idea that the Greens were wrong to oppose the CPRS way back in 2009 and, and if that had got up, it would have still been there, I think this shows that that's absolutely mistaken because any action uh, towards even slightly moving away from coal is too much for this powerful conservative bloc in the Liberal Party. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think um, just another kind of... um, I think it just shows how... <laughs> Well, almost, it's actually quite depressing when you look at the state of Australia right now in terms of actually implementing change for climate, um, for, around climate action. Um, you know, when we have people like this running our government who are just not interested in taking any serious action, um, the fact that they're not, not even interested in doing the bare minimum, um, what well, like even a minimumist kind of demands, just shows that we're... Well and truly, it's almost like almost. It almost feels like we're well and truly doomed. Of course, it's not all doom. I think because basically, what it really causes, we can't really we can't rely on these politicians. We actually need to go out there and organise, and we need to start mobilising people in in support in support of serious action on climate change to put serious pressure on on these politicians, and maybe hopefully in the future, then replace some of these politicians with politicians who are actually willing to take serious. Um, climate
2: action.
1: Hmm. Um, now, just we probably will have a bit more of a discussion um, about sort of all the politics of what's happening in um, the parliament right now. But I just, um, for listeners, I'll probably tune in. I'll, you'll probably be tuning into the news at twelve pm this Friday. Is probably when we'll find out definitely um, if Peter Dutton or Scott Morrison or Julia Bishop is going to be prime minister. Um, Refugee Action Collective has actually called for a protest in the situation that Dutton becomes Prime Minister. Um, so that will be happening this Sunday at 2pm. Um, and so it's it's um, the protest is likely to happen if either um, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton gets up. Um, I'm not sure if they are going to do the same thing if Julie Bishop gets in, but however, that said, I think there is a case that all three... Prime ministers would be equally terrible for refugees. I mean, Julia Bishop, um, even though she's not doesn't have much of a profile around um, refugees um, because she's never been an immigration minister, for example. Uh, unlike Peter Dutton and um, Scott Morrison, she has she absolutely stands by the offshore detention camps, and you know has said some pretty repugnant things in the past hmm. about refugees. So I think you know for the Refugee Action Collective, I. I imagine it will go. The protest will go ahead if Julia Bishop wins the leadership race by some miracle. And then I also heard some weird rumor that Tony Abbott was running for the leadership, but I don't think that's true. I'm pretty sure he's definitely not, unless they saw sort of some last minute singing at the end. Because you know, this is like a almost like a TV soap, soap opera. So anything can happen, really, theoretically. Um, but yeah, that's um, at this point, it's it's a freeway race between Julia Bishop, um, Peter no. Dutton, and Scott Morrison. Hmm okay um now just i'll play a quick announcement and then we'll go move on to some news for brain quickly. our first interview with steve o'brien is going to be at seven thirty a.m um and then we'll go move on straight to john Passant and then we'll go move on to more news then all right good you're listening to Greens Weekly Radio. Um, it is 7.12am on the 855am dial. Um, now, I just wanted to give a bit of some news updates on some of the things that have been happening in Australian politics. I um, just want to actually want to probably read out this statement, actually. Um in Donald Trump is going to be visiting um, Australia back in in November. Well, he's going to be mainly visiting Sydney. Um, at this point, there's no plan. I think he's going to be visiting Sydney, Brisbane, and maybe a few other cities. But um, unfortunately, the only city he probably won't be visiting is Melbourne. So, um, but there has been a coalition of different groups and um, other activists have started to come. Uh, have started to come together um, to organise a big a protest against Donald Trump uh, for in November, and uh, the former Green Senator Lee Rhiannon has initiated this statement um, that many um, individuals and organisations are signing up to, um, and I'll read it out here that. Um, disgracefully, Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has invited US President Donald Trump to visit Australia. This is likely to occur after the APEC summit in PNG in November. Donald Trump is a racist, misogynist, lying billionaire who is trying to drag global politics to the far right. His brand of extreme nationalism, Islamophobia, Greed, anti-refugee, anti-immigrant, anti-woman, anti-LGBTI, anti-union and anti-environment rhetoric and policies are abhorrent to the majority of the Australian public. The Turnbull government has aligned with Trump's bigoted and militaristic global agenda at every opportunity. We want to see Australia distance from Trump's values. His values do not represent the interests of most people on the planet or the planet itself. More than ever, we need to join together in Australia and across borders to struggle for a world that respects the equal rights and wonderful diversity of humanity, protects our fragile environment and equally shares the enormous wealth all around us. We call on Malcolm Turnbull to recite Trump's invitation to Australia and for Parliament to prohibit him from speaking if his visit goes ahead. We pledge that if Trump does visit, we will meet him with mass demonstrations to show our opposition to everything his presidency stands for. Yep, so that's a, um, a statement, um, and you can read um, you can read that um, statement again if you go on to Unite Against Trump um, on Facebook, or you can check, um, or it's also up on Greenleaf Weekly. Anyway, I'll just definitely just say stay tuned um, for any kind of future activities uh, around Trump's visit. Um, it's likely there'll be a massive demonstration in Sydney, um, probably some... Probably some listeners might be interested in travelling up to Sydney for it. And there's also the possibility that there might be something being organised in Melbourne at this point. Um now the next kind of thing I want to talk about is um this is something I was going I was gonna try and cover for Green Left Weekly Radio. Just but
2: just first on the Donald Trump thing. I think someone must have one of his advisors must have gone gone in his ear and gone, Hey Donald, apparently you will always lose in Melbourne. <laughs> better not go there uh,
1: yeah kind of i know because i'm um, i think yeah see, it's actually a bit disappointing he's not going to melbourne <laughs> but i do i do actually believe the the pro uh the protests in sydney will likely be pretty massive mm. um and would hope that um the, ma- um, the um, demonstrations match that of the protests in the uk which were absolutely massive very broad and i think they got tens of thousands of people across all the cities in um, the UK. So this, um, yeah, we should hope to see um, mass- some bass- massive demonstrations against Donald Trump. Um, so now this is the next. Uh, um, this is I'm talking about a bit of a campaign to save community um, mental health by the ASU. Um, and in, in this article in Greenleaf Weekly, um, it, it writes here that um, more than on aug- around August 16th, more than 200 health workers pro- protested uh, outside Victorian Health Minister Martin Foley's office on August uh, 16th to demand the Labour state government to restore funding to community mental health services. Services have been severely affected by the state government's decision to cut 75 million from mental health funding. And to give a bit more of a report. Um, Speakers at the protest said the state government is using the NDIS as a pretext to cut funds. However, there are nearly 135,000 people in Victoria with mental health needs not covered by the NDIS. There's a crisis in um, Victoria's mental health sector due to services being crippled by funding cuts, according to the ASU. Um, And result has been a sharp rise in cases of people with mental health needs in the approaching hospital emergency departments for services that community centres could provide according to the asu emissions at emergency departments have jumped 90 19 over the past four years and of course while the national average for spending on mental health is 227 dollars per capita victoria currently spends only 197 the lowest level in australia according to the asu um in some quotes here, um, the ASU delegate Adam Botney um, told Green Left Weekly that the NDIS excludes tens of thousands of people needing mental health from services if it provides. Controlled by the federal government, the NDIS strips community centres of the ability to assess the needs of sufferers. Um, ASU State Secretary Lisa Dunn said that a resolution to the crisis cannot wait until after the November state elections. The protests unanimously endorsed her resolution to continue to come back until the state government restores funding to mental health services um and so that's that's just a, a bit of a um a preview of the the campaign that's happening um, around the SU there is going to be actually another rally um pretty sure sometime in mid September um outside Martin Foley's office so yeah ch- stay tuned um for more updates on that um, and yeah if you're a community health or men- community mental health worker you um, should definitely get in contact with um, the ASU or if you if you want to find out a bit more of the campaign follow the ASU Facebook page.
2: Mm. Yeah it's a bit like dental care in Australia, mental health care, it's sort of outside the universal um, medical safety net that, that exists If you hurt your leg or something you know you can go to the hospital and get it looked at or if you if you have a cold you can go to the doctor and get that checked out for free but there's this gaping void with mental health care where it's it's not really covered by the NDIS it's not covered by medicare or the, the public health system mm.
1: well it's it's one of the it's it's almost one of the i mean it writes quite um quite closely i mean a lot of a lot of people who are who suffer under the kind of New start rege- regime, and um, there's a lot of people with you know mental illnesses that are you know been invisible or mm. have mental health issues that are, also don't appear as apparent as like a physical disability and so on. Who are actually, well, I mean, people with physical disabilities are also getting done over in this in this terrible system. But there's a there's a lot of cases where people you know with those um those physical issues are not taken seriously um, for their health problems and you know. Mm. If you're if you're on new start, for example, you know you struggle to find a bog, You just you just don't get the support that you actually need. Um, yeah, and it, I think it just goes to show sort of contributes to sort of the stigma towards mental health.
2: Mm. And then you get some stooge bureaucrat at centrelink, some stooge gatekeeper looking at some documents and some letters from a doctor and going, oh yeah, nah, that doesn't look legit. And so you get this bureaucrat who. Claims to have a greater insight into someone's mental health than actual mental health doctors and, you know, cutting them off payments. I saw earlier this week as well that uh, the robo-debt system is to be broadened to include people on uh, disability support payments. So there'll be people with um, mental illness who probably aren't in a great... Like, even someone without a mental illness, it's it's really intimidating to try and take on the Centrelink bureaucracy and get a robo debt overturned. But now they're spamming out these things to uh, to DSP recipients as well.
1: Hmm. All right, we'll just play a quick announcement and go to, on to a bit more news before our first interview. All right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It's seven twenty-three a.m. Um, we've just been talking a bit about um we've just been talking about a bit about the at the start of the program, we we're talking a bit about the Liberal leadership spill, and then we moved on to talking a bit about um, some of the kind of campaigns uh, that are brewing up, such as the rallies that are going to be organised against Donald Trump, um, and of course uh, the community health mental, um, the community mental health crisis and campaign that organised by the ASU. Now, then I want to move a bit more to talk a bit about what's happening in British politics. Um, some listeners probably have been following the, um, some of the developments in the Labour Party and um, some of the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, there's been these sort of there's been these charges uh, um, against Corbyn and the Labour Party, or Labour Party members in particular, from the right um, in the party of, you know, accusing, accusing um, Jeremy Corbyn or accusing the Labour Party of anti Semitism. And this is a statement sort of – that sort of was sort of drafted by um, Socialist Resistance, a sort of socialist organisation in the UK. And, you know, they write here that, you know, the plotters will not be satisfied with anything less um, than Corbyn's removal and humiliation. And I think – what they argue is that you know this sort of all these sort of slanderous claims of you know anti-Semitism and so on are you know is clearly aimed to force Corbyn out as the Labour leader, and if it fails, then cause Labour to lose the next election, and of course. You know, there's these increasing strident sort of charges of anti-Semitism within Labor and the widening circle of targets have by now, you know, departed from all reality. Uh, you know, Corbyn is denounced for attending a meeting eight years ago in which an elderly um survivor spoke. Labor friends of Israel share, um Ellman, is shocked to learn this, somehow forgetting that she too was at the meeting and, in fact, stayed there longer than Corbyn. <sighs> (sighs) Um, Across the country, Labor Party members are intimidated from raising issues surrounding Israel and Palestine precisely at this time, um, you know, precisely at this time when um, Israel's nation-state laws explicitly turns the country into an apartheid state, further threatening the rights of its Palestinian subjects. You know, meanwhile, um, you know, Israel's green friendship and alliance within with elements of the new international fr- far-right further undermines the struggle against anti-semitism and I think another sort of thing they call if, I mean one of the main issues with these kind of charges of anti-semitism towards Corbyn is that it's actually filling into this sort of right-wing kind of thing that you know if you if you oppose Zionism or, or equating anti-zionism and support for Palestine with um, with support um you know, with support, uh, you know, with support for anti-Semitism, uh, Semitism, which, you know, should be opposed. And I think there's also been this very sort of cynical kind of thing going on, where they're sort of relying on, you know, there's a sort of reliance on Jewish people within the Labour Party to raise these issues. And, you know, you know these sort of these sort of comments that are happening in the lines, usually from Blairite sort of right wing, as you know, I saying, You know, I can't say this because I will be attacked as anti semite. I think our Jewish comrades need to take the lead in this. And of course, you know, you know, in fact, as are being pointed out by uh, to some of people, some of the people taking this approach, Jewish members of the party are disproportionately targets of the, the witch hunt. And, of course, you know, Palestinian members, you know, of the Labor Party have been o- e- expressing their anger and frustration at the suppression of their voices. And I think, really, I think what, I mean, the, the, the kind of main conclusion really is here that, you know, uh, within the Labor Party, yes, they, def- they need to oppose anti-Semitism, but we should not, you know, give in to this sort of witch hunt and also we should um, definitely... Definitely stand by Corbyn because Corbyn is deliberately being smeared, you know, on by the sort of right wing elements of of the Labour Party. And I also think there's also a bit of weird, um, there's also a bit of weird hypocrisy in the media, um, of attacking Corbyn, um, you know, for you know, spending certain time with individuals that they deem as terrorists. In fact, they've attacked Corbyn for spending time with Sinn Féin. Yet I don't see the same kind of media attention being put towards Theresa May when she regularly hangs out with, you know, the Saudi Arabia warlords. And and also there was this sort of satire I saw that was quite funny um, that basically – uh, made this joke on how, oh yes, here's a here's a leaked photo of um of Jeremy Corbyn hanging out with convicted war criminal and it's actually just a photo of him and Tony Blair because obviously they would be in the same room because they're both members of the same party. So that's sort of that. so that's sort of a bit of a um I think quite um the kind of situation that's sort of happening in the Labour Party. And I think yeah, it is very um cynical in, you know, how Corbyn is being undermined as a leader, you know, based on his Clear support for Palestine, Palestinian rights and um, Palestinian rights and against Zionism. Mm.
3: All
1: right, I'm going to just go. I'll quickly play a quick announcement, and we'll go move on to our first um, interview. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is seven twenty-nine a.m. I think a block is missing for some reason. All right. And, um, we have Steve O'Brien, um, who is a Socialist Alliance member in Newcastle. Um, the reason why we're interviewing him is he wrote this sort of really good sort of article on, uh, for Green Left Weekly on why socialists, um, should run in elections. Uh, and so we're going to give, have a bit of an interview on sort of his analysis on the sort of importance of you know socialists and especially revolutionary socialists on contesting electoral kind of spaces and uh, in the context of kind of victoria where um you know we have the new victorian socialists um contesting uh the northern metropolitan um yeah and they're having their manifesto launch um tonight at um, 6 30 p.m at the brunswick town hall um so good morning steve
4: morning, Jacob. How are you
1: today? Yeah, pretty good. Um, I guess the first question, what is your kind of... Why do you think it's so sort of important, I guess, from, for socialists to sort of contest electoral kind of spaces in terms of your knowledge and what you've kind of drawn upon?
4: Well, in New South Wales, for example, and I guess generally in Australia, there's a very strong tradition of actually running a socialist, a revolution of socialists running in elections. It's actually something I grew up with. Um, I grew up in... Um, how would you say um, Central Australia mining town in a sense uh, Broken Hill and one of my earliest political memories must have been 1969 uh, just after television came to, to Broken Hill. I remember um, being a bit taken aback as a youngster seeing this ad on the television saying look for your communist candidates, um, Alderman Bill fin- Flynn and Alderman Alderman Bill Wiley and. For many years in Broken Hill, they were actually the first two councillors elected. Um, And they actually drew upon a much richer socialist tradition in Broken Hill, which went back to to the 1920s when for several years there, we actually had an industrial socialist uh, member of parliament, uh, Percy Brookfield. Where I live now in the Hunter region, actually, for four or five years, there was a a socialist, uh, oh, communist uh, party-led council in Kersley, which is uh, in the Hunter Valley between Cessnock and uh, Currie. So there's actually a strong tradition uh, of socialists um, being represented in, in Parliament and also in, in, in local councils. Why do we still do it today? Because really, um, the many of the issues that, that socialists were dealing with earlier in the 20th century uh, still face today. The Labour Party, well, in the Hunter region, we have pretty much well all, all Labour Party uh, candidates, but... At times, they really let the side down. They really let down their representatives. And actually, in since I've lived in the Hunter, there have been two occasions in 1989, and I think the last one was about 2000 when um, when working people have swung away from the Labor Party because they've been really, really um, disappointed and disillusioned with some of their um, some of their behaviour and why in which they've, they've let down the people that they've represented. So I think it's important for socialists to. To keep running, uh, to make sure that there is an alternative to, to pretty much all the Liberal Labor duopoly, which is often what dominates, uh, dominates parliamentary politics, and make sure that people have an alternative to to, to to consider, and also to keep that pressure on the Labor Party to to, to uh, not stray and, and actually to do some of the uh, dirty deals that they've done in the past, and that have actually seen them thrown out in, in strong working class areas such as the
1: under reason. What are some of the lessons um, that of these sort of, uh, you know, what are some of the lessons you think that these uh, elected socialists and communists, um, you know, um, can bring, you know, for kind of socialists or radicals active today?
4: Uh, Class independence, you know, making it really clear and not blurring the line between the fact that working people have their own representation and their own interests that are actually quite separate. From, from from the ruling class from from the from, from the bosses, I mean that's one of the things that the Labour party do. they say that uh they're in a sense uh without using the exact word the broad church they say they imply that they're a multi class alliance which um okay um <clears throat> in the sense of representing small business communities and and um and, and different sectors uh, that that may be that you could make an argument for that but really what you have to do is, is, is make a distinction. Clear distinction between working people and, and and the ruling class. The working people are the ninety nine percent. The ruling class are the one percent. Unfortunately, the ruling class's ideology, the ruling class's commitment to neoliberalism, for example, to uh, to deny the role of the state fits into the Labour Party, and that permeates the whole a lot of um a lot of working class consciousness and, and, and blurs blurs people's understanding of of their uh, position in society and blurs people's understanding of the need that they actually need to stand up for their own rights in terms of affordable housing, in terms of uh, a short working week, in terms of the taxes that they pay, in terms of the fact that they get a decent wage and and decent penalty rates. Sometimes the Labor Party can't really blow that distinction. And so they tell everybody, oh, you're aspirational. No, we're working class. You're not aspirational class, we're working class. So that's what's really important, to, to make sure that people have got a bit more of a sense and maintain the tradition, that working class traditions are quite distinct, and working class interests and needs are quite distinct to those of the of the 1%, the ruling class. We're so very narrowly focused about protecting their interest there, particularly economic interest, irregardless even to the extent, irregardless the needs of the, of the planet and potentially the survival of the planet with the whole terrible consequences of, of climate change. And at the moment in south know, for example, we're, we're suffering bushfires in the winter.
2: Hmm. Um, Steve, I've, one of the questions that's come up around the Vic Socialist campaign down here. Is uh, this idea that it's 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 better to run in elections if you've got a, an electable or a viable socialist candidate that you can put forward? Um, and I, I I've got some sympathy for that argument. I've run as a candidate myself and got some pretty um, low votes. Um, what, what what's your thoughts on running when you don't actually have that much chance of winning? What's the usefulness or otherwise of of doing that?
4: Well, you're maintaining a tradition, and that's the important thing. It, it's very that it can be harder for a socialist to come along and then and raise a socialist flag, and people say, "Well, who are you?" Um, in my case, what I'm doing is slowly building up. Well, we're being able to slowly maintain and even build up a, a socialist vote in the Newcastle area, and that's not be not. Just through me running, it's actually carrying on a long standing tradition. And, and Zane, you know, you've done very good work in Newcastle when you lived in Newcastle and run as a candidate in many senses. I come on from that. You followed on from other comrades in the past that have um, maintained that socialist tradition. And also, um, and we picked it up from the Communist Party, who also used to consistently run. So it's an argument that. The reason for running in elections is to really put forward that's what I was explaining before in a sense. Putting really pressure on the Labour Party and also putting also in a sense putting pressure on the Greens, who all for them to maintain a um you know, policies that are more class-based. Uh, in Newcastle, uh, the Greens tend to be a little bit more left-wing, and um, it's important that uh, that we keep that focus and on, on for them to, to 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 you know keep more of a um, a, a class line. Where yeah, where they tend to do a little bit more in New South Wales. When you look at all of those votes, then you can make an argument that um, hey, you know, the progressive vote is actually. It, The left of Labour, progressive vote when you combine it with the Greens uh, and the Socialists, and sometimes a progressive independent might run, that actually performs a powerful argument when you're saying, "Well, you know, our vote is 15, 16, 17, 18 percent." You put that in the whole context of of building the progressive movement. The other thing we do is we form alliances. You know, we run in a sense with the Greens at times. At sometimes you run with other progressive candidates. I know that when I've run, we feel like. when, when, we've, when, when we've been at joint electoral forums, with they have divided up the labour uh, in a sense, you know, with a bit of an understanding that, uh, um, that, that the Tories are the main enemy and we can very much divide up the labour and, and, and go for them on on particular aspects of um, where they fall down and don't serve the needs of working people. So it is important, I think, for socialists to run. Even though you may not appear to be winning a particular council seat or necessarily winning, um, winning a, uh, you know, winning an actual seat in parliament, that's, that's not the main issue. What we're doing is we're really pressuring other candidates from the left. We're also putting forward a socialist alternative so that in the future you're actually creating conditions for, for other progressive candidates to, to, to do it on that base and to consistently take forward more, more of a class line. Winning is important, but winning isn't everything. Mm-hmm. You only win in the future by actually having laid the groundwork uh, in the past. And mm-hmm. also developing the skills amongst activists in terms of policy and an on-the-ground organisation of putting out effective uh, electoral propaganda posters, leaflets, getting, making sure that your message actually reaches people with that socialist message rather than the dogmatic calls in the wilderness.
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, one one thing about in the, the Victoria experience because we have two elected um, socialist councillors, um, both of them are, who are running um, for Victorian socialists is in the case of um, the Social science councillor Sue Bolton, um, historically actually when that campaign was wrong, although I wasn't part of it at the time because I wasn't involved in politics back then, um, it was actually unexp They didn't. Um, there is actually an understanding – I'm not sure about Stephen Jolly when he first won his council edition, but there was a strong understanding um, you know, um, for Sue that they didn't expect to win. Um, they actually didn't expect to win. So um, it's going to be sort of interesting if, if people are going to be disappointed because, you know, w- with this campaign, uh, with Victorian Socialists, that we're putting, anyone who's involved is putting it in, we're, we're in it to win um, – we might be disappointed that the result might not come as a sh- uh, sure thing, because yeah, there's been cases where you know you didn't expect to win, but you did win. Um, but I guess one of the things, I guess, what's important, I guess, about the two socialist councillors that did get elected um, is they both got elected on the basis of their in heavy um, their historical involvement in social movements. Um, in the case of Sue, was her kind of activism in the local area in Moreland. Um, in the case of Steve, it was his historical role um, in uh, in the campaign around the Richmond Secondary, um, the Richmond High School, um, organising the blockade to stop that from being closed down. Um, so, kind of that kind of leads the question, Steve. So, what do you what sort of your comments? This is going to be the last question, I guess. Um, your comments on the relationship between um, Parliament and and the sort of, you know, social movement work that um, socialists do, what do you th- how do you think, you know, the, par- the parliament, how do you think those two things are linked?
4: Well, uh, look, before I go into on that one, I'll give you another example. I think it was in the, in the mid-80s, just uh, during the nuclear disarmament uh, party. Everybody wrote us off after the, um, after the luminaries walked out of the party. but so we actually continued to, to campaign for the nuclear disarmament party and actually got someone elected. When I was totally unsurprised it was um uh, ah, forget his last name, Woods, <laughs> Woods, I think it was. We actually got somebody elected um when everybody had, had written us off. That was that was also to do with the preference system, which is an important part of 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 why it's important for socialists to run, because that gives us a strategic advantage that you might not have in other countries. It's obviously important for people to have an important movement social profile. And, and take that, and again, respecting their community and, and, and perhaps use that to build a profile that is electoral, that can actually get them elected. The important thing when socialists are in parliament is not to make the mistake that the Labor Party makes and I think sometimes the Greens make, that forget the movement. Let's see the movement is this as a vehicle for getting them elected to parliament rather than seeing a parliamentarian, a radical parliamentarian, a socialist parliamentarian role to be in there and build the movement because without the movement, politics, think politicians are nothing. So that's the key thing, that real organic relationship between an effective people's politician, an effective socialist in Parliament, and building the movement. The movement is not dependent on a politician. The politician is very much dependent on the movement. And I think Steve and, um, and Susan and I think is Irene who's, there, who's the third, third socialist candidate. They're really good examples of, of, of activists. I think going into Parliament, potentially going into Parliament to so actually build that movement. And, and I hope, personally, I hope to go down there and, um, and I find the whole campaign very inspiring. I hope to come down and, um, and, and spend a day on the poll and do the pre polling on myself and like that, just to get a bit of a sense of, uh, you know, what the primary in, in, in Victoria has managed to achieve for the socialist election campaign, Victorian socialists elected or not something that's really, Comments you to your election or not, something that's really interesting and really inspiring, a person, something I want to come down and, and have a closer look at just to really see that there's a be between between prominent socialists and prominent socialist activists and the potential to actually take campaigns and have a voice for people's campaigns, um, have voice
1: in the Victorian. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you very much, Steve. Um, We're going to go move on straight to our next interview. Um, but thank you very much for being on our program.
2: Yeah, cheers. No
4: problem.
2: Thanks for the opportunity to talk. Okay. good luck on it. Bye. All right. See you soon. And yes, uh, Steve O'Brien there from uh, calling in from Newcastle. He's a Socialist Alliance member and has just written an article for Green Left about why socialists should take part. Elections. All right, you're listening to 3CR, and it is a quarter to eight at 8.55 on the AM dial yep. or streaming online. online, online Let's get a quick announcement and we'll get on to our next interview.
1: All right, on the air, um, online, we have John Passant, um, who is going to be our Canberra correspondent and press gallery member, and is the press gallery member of Independent Australia. Um, so, good morning, John. Hi, how are you? Oh, good. Just making sure we had you there. Um, so, Zane, you wanted to ask
2: the first kind of question. Uh, yeah, well, it's uh, what's been happening in Canberra. What's uh, I'd <laughs> to hear your uh, on-the-ground sort of uh, take on on the uh, massive internal fight that's happening in the Liberal Party.
3: Well, I think the the answer to that is complete chaos. Um, We have a government in complete disarray. Uh, This was captured for me yesterday when the Senate question time was on, and um, the the head of the Senate stood up, Josh, and said basically, "Oh, um, I'm going to be answering questions for," and then listed about seven ministries and uh, so-and-so is going to be answering questions for another uh, seven or eight ministries. So they only had three or four ministers in the Senate who could take uh, answers on behalf of uh, all the other ministers who were no longer there. So we've got a government without a prime minister or a prime minister in name only, uh, no ministers or very few ministers. Uh, we've got an internal fight going on within the Liberal Party between the two wings, the so-called conservative wing, which I noticed this morning one um, moderate member has called the uh, has called them out as the reactionaries, and I think that's right, versus uh, the non-reactionaries. so We've got this power play going on for government, but I think there's a wider issue going on here that's driven by um, the public's rejection of neoliberalism and the neoliberal policies of people like uh, Malcolm Turnbull. So to imagine that Peter Dutton as leader would fix up uh, the appeal of the, the government to the population is, is completely wrong. It's not about the personalities. It's not even about the racism that uh, Dutton's going to unleash. I think it's really about the policies of neoliberalism um, that the, this government has been implementing and the rejection of those policies by uh, the overwhelming majority of Australians or a majority of Australians, and that's reflected in the 38 polls that the government's lost in a row.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think one, though there has been actually a few other kind of opinions sort of floating around. And I'm interested in hear hearing your thoughts about this. Um, apparently one sort of argument for why, um, you know, why they're pushing Peter Dutton as, you know, Prime Minister leader is basically... Um, there's this, apparently there's this fear internally within the Liberal Party um, that you know the Liberal Party is going to lose some seats in Queensland to One Nation, um, and so Peter Dutton is the leader that is best positioned um, to win those uh, win those seats from um, One Nation. Of course, then there's that seems like a, a bit of a tactical problem because I don't imagine that Sid you know, the likes of New South Wales and Victoria would actually accept Peter Dutton as a leader. And, you know, I imagine that seats like Cragmite um, or in uh, sort of around the central Victoria would, I, which are ma- quite marginal, I don't imagine them, the Liberals winning a seat like that in the context of a Peter Dutton prime minister, but I, whereas I would imagine them winning it in the context of a Malcolm Turnbull, you know, lead, um, leadership
3: Yes, it's an interesting point. I, I think part of the problem with saying that Peter Dutton will win seats for them or hold seats for them in Queensland is that this stereotypes Queensland as some sort of backwater. And uh, it's it's not a backwater. I, I think if you look at Peter Dutton's seat itself, you know, on the outskirts of Brisbane or in the suburbs of Brisbane and so forth, that the people there have day-to-day concerns about the level of their wages, about increasing inequality about the level of services and so forth. And he only holds that by, after the retribution, by 2%. So he's likely to lose his own seat in Queensland if there is a swing of the same proportion that occurred in the by-election in Longman. So I I, I think that in some areas of Queensland where um, One Nation has appeal, he might bring One Nation voters Back via One Nation to the Liberals. But as you say, uh, or as I'm saying, that doesn't mean that that's going to transfer into a vote for the Liberals or the Nationals or the Liberal National Party in the rest of Queensland in suburban areas of Brisbane and the Gold Coast and other major cities. And also it doesn't mean, as you quite rightly point out, that people in Victoria or people in New South Wales are suddenly going to vote Liberal. They're more likely to switch away from the reactionary politics and the xenophobia and racism of Dutton. And I, I think you get a clear indication of that from Darren Chester, one of the nationals in Victoria, who said he will sit on the crossbench if there is a change of leadership to Peter Dutton, because he knows full well his seat in Victoria is under threat if Peter Dutton is in charge. So I think this idea of Peter Dutton being the saviour is just shows you how far out of touch the Liberal Party or sections of the Liberal Party are. They have little idea of the reality of life for Mm. most Australians and who aren't... I mean, some people are are attracted to the One Nation telling it straight, which is nonsense because they don't know what they're saying, um, and their racism. But on the other hand, most Australians reject this overt racism. They reject these ideas of xenophobia and so forth. And what they want... Is better wages. What they want is secure jobs. What they want is clearly a, a, a question of better services. And they know that Peter Dutton and Malcolm Turnbull can't deliver that. Yeah. Mm. Well,
1: I think what's interesting, I mean, oh, Dane, what i to go make this comment first and see your response to it, um, is what's interesting is I think it shows an interesting stage in Australian capitalism, uh, the instability of the Liberal Party, um Actually, says something about capitalism. I think, Um, especially when you, 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 it's it's quite. I think it's quite clear that you can probably argue that the Labor Party is actually positioning themselves to the capitalists as the ones best fit to run um, Australian capitalism. Um, Such. when you look at this kind of instability of the Liberal Party, of course, there's this own instability in the Liberal Party, and so there's almost like there's almost like a crisis in capitalism attempting to maintain themselves. And of course, I actually think you know, I think you're right that it, the reality is, you know, I think the the fact that the majority are increasingly rejecting neoliberalism has quite a lot to do because capitalism is struggling to sell, sell itself to the people. And that's why we keep going through this cycle of the Liberals being voted out and then Labor being voted back in and the Liberals being voted back out. And then That's why we're going through that cycle because... In the absence of a left alternative, um, people are frustrated with capitalism and capitalism is struggling to sell itself. And I think, you know, the Labor Party are rightfully, um, because they're not a workers' party, um, positioning themselves as the one to best run capitalism because the Liberal Party certainly is not managing it well in in light of this whole instability of the leadership.
3: Yes, that's a really good point. The, the crises of capitalism or the crisis of capitalism. I think in one of my articles in Independent Australia earlier this week, I alluded to that in terms of mentioning profit rates globally and what's been happening with them and uh, also in Australia and since the mining boom ended in uh, the 2012-13. The, the decline of profit rates in Australia has created the conditions in which for capitalist politicians, there needs to be more neoliberalism, not less. More cuts to services, lower taxes for big business, and so forth. All the sort of, and and maybe in the Australian context, uh, a withdrawal from the Paris Agreement for for certain sections of capital, anyway. And I think that really, when you you made the point that the Labor Party is positioning itself as the stable party of capitalism, that it's one that can govern effectively over the next three or five or six or however many terms they, they think they will get, we will we'll be able to govern rationally and uh, so forth for capitalism. But the problem for them is going to be that they're going to be faced with the same same issues of how to implement neoliberalism, keep their own base on side. And uh, I think uh, if you look back at the Hawke and Keating period, the, the defeat of Paul Keating in 1996 is an indicator that what Labor does is then lay the groundwork for a resurgence of uh, conservatism. But I think this time the debates that are going on within the Liberal Party's fight seem to me to show that there is an irreconcilable difference between the, the reactionaries and the conservatives or the, the so-called moderates and that we could end up with a split a split uh, Liberal, Party, uh, Liberal Party split around the issues... Um, seemingly nothing to do with the crisis in capitalism but reflecting that deeper issue of the crisis in capitalism that you talked about. And I think the other point you made was important point two, that there really is a lack of a left alternative in Australia at the moment that's strong enough to attract working-class people to it that, that can put forward the argument that working-class people have to fight for better jobs, have to fight for better wages, have to fight to defend um, public health and public education and public transport and the NDIS and so forth.
2: Yeah. saying Uh yeah, we've had a um a listener call in with a question and I guess yep. this uh is kind of along the lines of the, the the weakness and the fighting in the Liberal Party at the moment kind of creates opportunities if if people can get organised and can campaign. Um, to really maybe make some advances. So this person called in and said, in response to the Royal Commission into misconduct in the uh, banking, super and financial services industry, uh, if there's one thing that we should do as citizens, uh, what would that be? Well,
3: that's a really good point. You can understand the the reasons why the government resisted having a Royal Commission into the banks and the super industry and the finance industry um, precisely because of what's coming out there now and the the fact that what they do is put profit before people. Whether you can organise around that particular issue is another question. I think there's a lot of uh, passive support for the left when we say, well, you know, the banks are ribbing off people, they're criminals, why aren't they in jail? But whether that passive support would then turn into action uh, i'm not sure but one of the things i wrote about previously when the debates about the royal commission into banking was going on is well why don't we nationalize the banks or if that's constitutionally impossible set up a people's bank and reverse the privatizations that keating set in frame but it raises that wider question of where is the fight back in australia at the moment now if you look around the globe politically you can see expressions of a desire for a fight back in places like the Great Britain, with the rise of Jeremy Corman in the u s we 've got the Democratic Socialists of America operating through the um, uh, through the democratic party rising rising influence that they 've gotten the um, support for Bernie Sanders in the, um, in the to fight for the leadership of the Democrats as to who would be their presidential candidate in two thousand and sixteen um, and, of course, you've got uh, all, all across Europe, you've got a rise of left-wing groups, but as well you've got the rise of reactionaries and uh, fascists across, across Europe, some of whom are now in government. So I think the question is going to be posed starkly uh, in the near future around the globe and perhaps in australia of how do we create that left alternative and i think the answer is we've just got to keep pushing the ideas that it's our own self-activity it's our own organization in our unions it's our own campaigning against the dutton's racism and the government's racism more generally it's our own campaigning for better wages and higher uh, and and secure employment and so forth that's going to make a difference the question is how do we get there and at, at the moment um, I don't think the left has, has has managed to convince the wider population that that's the case. And indeed, if the Labor Party becomes the party of natural government for the next term or two terms of capitalist government, then that might put a, 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 a further pressure down on people who do want to fight against actually taking out that fight. So I'm not saying that everything's bleak because, you know... Um, Things break out uh, that just uh, the bureaucrats and the Labor Party can't control. But nevertheless, at the moment, there isn't that mass movement on the ground in Australia to make m- make the left-wing change politically or uh, industrially that uh, all of us would want.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a g- kind of good point to sort of end on. But I guess one last sort of thing I want to see comment on is... Um, In terms of what's going to happen today, um, what do you think are some of the possibilities that are going to kind of arise politically out of this? Um, Because I've heard there's going to be a possibility. It's likely, I think, um, that there will be... Because um, if Turnbull's not going to be either Scott Morrison or or Dutton or Julie Bishop are going to become our next Prime Minister leader, and I think in that event that um, Turnbull is no longer leader, he was going to step down from um, From politics, which is then get to trigger a by election um, which then will possibly potentially lead to a federal election so what what do you think is all sort of the implications of all that?
3: Well, I think there are a couple of different things um, firstly it's not clear to me that they've got the thirty eight vote forty three votes sorry forty three votes necessary for Turnbull to hold the meeting. Um, secondly, there's the advice from the solicitor general which could perhaps cruel button's chances, although you never know, even if the Solicitor General says there's an arguable case that he's not eligible for a sit and it should be referred to the High Court. Who knows? And then the choice between Morrison, and even if it goes ahead today, if it doesn't go ahead today, then there will be a party meeting on the 10th through 11th of September. So we'll have two more weeks of this facade, which I just cannot believe the Liberal Party would allow to go on for that long. So I think that there will be some sort of resolution today or on Monday. Um... And the choice will then be between Morrison, Dutton and Bishop. So you've got the two brutalisers, Morrison and Dutton, who made their careers on um, locking people up in concentration camps on Nauru and menace. And you've got Julie Bishop, uh, who's pre-election, pre-19, pre-parliamentary claim to fame, which she didn't want. People dying of asbestos to be able to claim in courts, why should they get a uh, an early run to the courts just because they were dying and I think you know all of this indicates that really the it 's unmanageable within the Liberal party, no matter who they come up with they 're going to lose and labour will be the next government. The question then becomes is when do we have the election? if Turnbull gets dumped, which I am pretty sure he will be, um, then there will be a by election in his seat, and uh, that means that the the possibility is that the Greens or the Labor Party could win that seat, given the backlash against his dumping. Um, if so, then the government would lose a, its majority on the floor of the House, and there's no guarantee that the crossbench would or would would give their support to supply and to money bills. So uh, we could be heading to eventually to a, an election earlier than. Uh, the, the mooted May election next year but I think the, really, the real solution to this is we need to go to an election now we need to let people exercise their democratic choice to get rid of this rotten government and then we need to be prepared to fight whichever new government is in power which will be, I'm pretty sure, it's a shortened government and that we need to think about how, what issues we can mobilise on and um, point out the fact that Labour is now the chosen candidate of capital to manage capitalism So it's going to be a long road ahead, but I think in the short term that we'll have a new leader of the Liberal Party and they won't make any difference. It'll still be a disastrous government and we need an election now.
2: Yeah. All right, thank you very much, John. Yeah, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Uh, John Passant there in uh, in Canberra, who is the Canberra correspondent and press gallery member for Independent Australia, which you may have seen going around the interwebs. There's uh, yeah, some good lefty coverage of different uh, issues and stuff at Independent Australia. So, yeah, good to hear from John. All right, it is four minutes past eight, and that means it is time for the activist calendar.
1: All right, so there's quite a lot of stuff actually happening today. Um, so, actually, if you go onto melbourne university website or if you search the prague spring melbourne university on in google you'll probably find this it's um it's actually some like a free sort of seminar Sort of conference around the Prague Spring um, that's happening all day, and a number of left-wing academics are going to be speaking at. So where's this happening? happening? At Melbourne University. Yeah, wow. So it's happening from nine am to five pm today. Ah. Um, so there'll be yeah, different academics and historians. A lot of them are left-wing academics, so it is coming from a very pro-left-wing kind of perspective. It's not like an anti-sort of socialist sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. Um, take on the Prague Spring, which is sort after of
2: that, the activist calendar remind me because I was lucky enough to visit Prague and I went on a communism bunker tour. And, okay. and it was a very interesting insight into um, the, the kind of the communist history there.
1: Yeah. And there's an article in the late, in Left Green Left Weekly about um, 50 years since the Prague Spring. Um, so this is something actually we might cover next week, actually. I'll see if I can get in contact with one of the academics to do a bit of a, uh interview about the Prague Spring and its kind of significance today. Um, so then uh, – Also happening tonight will be the Victorian Socialist Election Manifesto launch, um, which will be happening at 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner of Sydney Road and Dawson Street in Brunswick. On Saturday, August 25th, there will be a community rally for workers' safety at Woolworths, Moorabbin. Uh, Workers in retail and fast food are subjected to outrageous behaviours, including assaults, threats and abuse. We're not paid to cop it and our employees should be... Should be stopping it. Um, They'll be at twelve noon at Woolworths Taylor Street in Morabin and it's organised by the Rental Fast Food Workers Union. Um, there'll be the, <coughs> there'll be a counter protest to the march for men. Uh, notorious um, anti-feminist, racist and conservative figure Cindy Watson has arranged a March for Men, a rally for right-wing anti-feminists to come together and take to the streets of Melbourne. Um, the March for Men gives a platform to racist, sexist, and misogynists to continue pushing harmful rhetoric about the feminist movement and its aims to achieve gender equality. So this, uh, join our counter-process and say no to Sexism in Australia and they'll be at 12.30pm at the Federation Square in, uh, in Melbourne. <laughs> um... There'll be a music and film, um, Latin punk rock night, uh, music videos and documentaries about the Latin American struggle, food and drink at 7pm at the Melbourne Anarchist Club, 62 St George's Road in Northcote, and it's organised by Laznet. Um, on Tuesday, August, oh, the first thing, if um, past 12pm on in obviously on Friday, in the context of the leadership spill, um, if Peter Dutton or Scott Morrison becomes Prime Minister, potentially even Julia Bishop, um, there will be a protest at 2pm on Sunday, um, called by the Refugee Action Collective. Um, But that is in the event um, that Peter Dutton becomes our Prime Minister, or Scott Morrison or Julia Bishop. um, At this point, there's potentially a possibility that uh, a leadership vote might be delayed until next week, um, but we'll have to see. basically kind of anything can kind of happen um, today. So just tune into your radio and... Um, which will keep you updated. Or just um, follow um, Facebook and the uh, Twitter or the news headlines. Um, on Tuesday, August the twenty eighth, um, there'll be a forum: hot, 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 fighting for climate justice. A panel of activists looked how vested interests are stopping the remedies to address climate change and how we need to fight back. Uh, it Features a speaker from social science, the environmental officer at Melbourne University, and we also have now have a Pacific Islander. Now has a Pacific Islander speaker from New, Kine- um, from New Catalonia. Um, so they'll be at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, and it's presented by Greenleaf Weekly. Um, the next few events are, uh, there'll be a public meeting also on that same night, a Tuesday, public meeting, Digital Tech for peak planning People Rather Than the Privilege, featuring uh, Lizzie O'Shea, and there'll be the new international bookshop at 7pm, um, at the Shades Hall. Um, there'll be a protest, uh, protest syndicate no arms manufacturers on campus syndicate is a conference bringing together weapons producers and university it's hosted by the defense science and technology group the second largest publicly funded research and development organization in australia and one which is exclusively dedicated to military hardware so they'll be at 1 p.m at dst melbourne 506 lawmeyer street in port melbourne and it's hosted by the national union of students education department um, there'll be a public meeting on August the twenty ninth. The case to bring them here. Um, They'll be actually for some reason they don't have a time for that protest. They that just mentioned oh, weird. Oh no, one p.m. Sorry, one p.m. Yeah, okay. That um, so there'll be a public meeting. The case to bring them here, and they will feature um, Nick McKimbre, and spokesperson for Immigration Justice, Abdul Aziz Adam, a Sudanese refugee detained on Manus for five years, and one of the leaders of the struggle for freedom on Manus. And then they'll they'll be happening at six thirty p.m. at the ANMF five three five Lizard Street in the city, and it's hosted by Refugee Action Collective. Um on. There'll be other, on Friday the 31st of August, there'll be a public meeting launched of the re-TAC-EHA silica exposed, uh, exposed standard. We're taking a stand on silica exposure. Silica dust is so fine it can enter the deepest part of the lungs. Exposure can lead to fatal disease including silicosis and lung cancer. So that'll be at 10am. See it from you. 540 Lizard Street in the city. Um, there'll be a film screening, Stop Adani, a, M- a mighty force, and they'll be at the Repower, 30pm, Friday, August 31st, at the Repower Victoria Hub, 130 Young Street in Frankston. Uh, on Sunday, September the 2nd, there'll be a committee night, Keeping the Bastards Honest, topical poly- political comedy on the first Sunday of each month, and they'll be at 5pm at the Brunswick Green, 313 City Road in Brunswick. Um there'll be a protest, detective hunt for Mafia guys missing um climate change policy, despite the fact that Victoria has an election in little over three months. Opposition leader Mafia Guy and the Victorian Liberal Party has failed to present a plan to rein in emissions and protect the community from climate change impacts and so it'll be at twelve noon at Parliament, Spring Street and Facebook uh, Spring Street in the city. On Friday, uh, September the seventh, there'll be a protest against Nigel Farage, opposed the far right, at six pm at the Crown Casino. Um, And also happening uh, will be a public meeting on that same night, September the seventh, Friday, uh, an evening with Chelsea Manning um, at the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre. On Tuesday, September 11th, there'll be a public meeting, uh, the, many so, uh, the Many Socialisms of Ernie Lane, an attempt to make sense of Australian pre-Bolshevik socialism by examining the ideological evolution of pioneering radical Ernest Henry Lane. And they will feature speaker Jeff Rickett. Um, and at the, at, it's at 7pm at the New International Bookshop, Trades um, Hall 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. Um, on Saturday, September the 15th, um, there'll be a forum, What Can Young People do to Be Doing to Help Refugees? And they'll be at 4pm at the Camberwell Library, 5340 40 Camberwell Road in Camberwell. And they'll be hosted by the Melbourne Youth for Refugees. Um, on Wednesday, September the 9th, there'll be a conference, Transforming Democracy, Claiming Our Power, and a conference of the Federation of Community Legal Centres at the Town Hall. Um, forum, Acting Out, Art That Changes the World, discussion with Steve Lambert, guerrilla artist and founder of the, the New York-based Centre for Artistic Activism, and that'll be at 6.15pm at the Wheeler Centre. And on Monday, September the 24th, there'll be the NUW Picnic Day at 10am at the Muni Rally's race course. And on Tuesday, um, September 25th, there'll be film screening of Jarrah, and for former Australian so- soldier Mike is a haunted man. During a tour of Afghanistan, he accidentally shot a man who was unarmed and has never, was, has never been able to forget. Determined to fight this most grievance of wrong, Mike sets out to find the man's family and throw himself at the re- mercy of the village court of traditional Afghani justice, the Jarrah. And this will be followed by a Q&A discussion, and will be at 6.30 p.m., 45 p.m. at the Cinema Nova, 480 Ligon Street in Carlton. All right. Um, so, yes, that's uh, that's the activist calendar. Unless, saying you had any few more announcements you wanted to add? Uh, no. All right. Um, so, we might just go actually... Um, we might use this time, actually, now to play me... We haven't played a song yet um, for the program. So, we'll just go... We might, we'll play Done um, by Camp Cope. Um, and then we'll move on to uh, a bit more news stories to close up the program. All right. you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, that was done by Camp Cope. Um, it is eight nineteen AM, probably about to hit eight twenty soon, um, and we just get to spend the next seven to eight minutes sort of discussing some a news article from Green Left, news article from Green Left Weekly. And I think Zane wanted to
2: talk a bit about the Prague Spring. Yes. I visited uh, Prague a couple of years ago with my partner and and, and her family and it was really um, fascinating um, visit. Prague is of course a very beautiful city, and part of the reason for that is that at the start of World War two um, the Nazis basically annexed the um, annexed Prague really quickly and with very little resistance from the local... <clears throat> it's kind of like a Vichy regime. There was a this yellow regime that just sort of let the Nazis in, basically. So unlike in other parts of Europe that were very contested and there was a lot of fighting between the Allies and the Nazis, Prague got taken by the Nazis very quickly, and it was only right at the end of World War II that II um, that the communists came in and, and the Nazis had already basically been defeated over the rest of Europe, and they basically just tried to smash a bit of stuff on their way out of um, uh, Prague, but they, they weren't able to destroy too much. So that was fascinating to sort of look at why that, that city is so beautiful. Uh, it's because it wasn't smashed up as much as a lot of the rest of Europe in World War Two. Um and it was interesting because there was a substantial German population predating World War two and everything, substantial German population in Prague and the Czech Republic and a substantial Jewish population. So when it was when uh, the Nazis came in and annexed the place, the uh, sort of Prague German population Uh, who were not Nazis, they were just Germans who happened to be in Nazi-occupied Prague, they helped shelter the Jewish population. And then later, when the um, Soviets came in and kind of liberated Prague, Germans suddenly became circumspect because, you know, the whole Nazi fascism thing. Um, And so the Jewish population, in a sense, returned the favour in Prague and helped shelter the local German population who were not Nazis but who were now circumspect because of the whole, um, you know, fascism across Europe and, and, uh, you know, gassing of the Jews and everything. So that was a really interesting aspect that um that relationship between the german and the jewish population in prague uh and then in 1946 shortly after the end of world war 2 um elections were held and people talk about chile being the world's first democratically elected communist government which strictly speaking is true because they won outright but actually the world's first democratically communist government was in the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia as it then was in 1946 and the communists didn't have an outright majority but they were basically the largest block of the um governing coalition in the Czech um or in Czechoslovakia and it was a ill-fated decision to basically abolish the parliament in, I think, 1948, I'm going to say. I don't know. there There was a democratically elected government of which the communists were the largest bloc and that went on for a couple of years and then reforms were taking too long and things were happening and so they basically... The the communists used their power there to get rid of democratic elections in Prague mm. and um, implement yeah. a more Stalinist centralised system, which yeah. is...
1: Well, basically, I think the context was that, you know, um, a lot of the, uh, the countries of the Eastern Bloc were ruled by St- Stalinist parties. And I think, you know, the Communist Party of shekhov was of a Stalinist bent, although of course there was very radical and revolutionary elements within as well. And of course they actually won the elections on the base of their support for the oppressed on the back of the fact that they were part of the anti-Nazi kind of resistance. Um, but now going into looking back at 1968, you know, one of the, there was lots of world shaking events that were happening in 1968. I mean, you can just look at May 1968 in France and, um, and you, and of course, interesting enough, it's a bit of a pattern with a lot of these events as well. Um, but in you know, high on the list, as Chris Lee writes here in Greenleaf Weekly, uh, about you know the fifty years since the Prague Spring um, was the movement for reform in Czechoslovakia to create a democratic socialist alternative to the Stalinist bureaucracy. Mm. Um, but of course, that was crushed by um, by the Stalinists because they sent in the tanks. Um, and the justification for you know the Prague Spring for the invasion of um, Czechoslovakia was that there were was to save socialism, but really what they were doing was they were actually crushing kind of the democratic alternative um, to the Stalinist regimes at the at the time. Mm. And of course, you know, going years ahead, it was it made it very it really kind of I think these kind of events really played a role, of really discrediting discrediting the ideas of socialism and communism um you know the role of the status bureaucracy because you know later on back into towards the late 80s um people just accepted um you know a restoration of capitalism really without question because they had no concept of alternative because they did have the alternative and it was incredibly bureaucratized and it was authoritarian um mm. despite the fact that that said, it wasn't that, you know, socialism is inherently bad because there was a movement from a form of socialism, like it, this idea of a socialism with a human face, the idea of a, a, a democratic sort of socialism that <clears> didn't <throat> have to have the authoritarianism and the bureaucracy of Stalinism. And,
2: and this idea of socialism with a human face came from the... Um, I'm not sure if it's the president or the prime minister, but the Alexander Dubček, the leader of the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia, who was... Um it was similar to what's happening in Canberra at the moment. There was an unpopular the the leader of the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia in in the late 60s was really unpopular and hated and the um there was a a shift from within the Communist Party and the guy that took over Alexander Dubček was part of a reform movement within the Communist Party. So then when those protests in the streets came along there was also sign in the leadership of the party who supported that, who said there should be freedom of political plurality, there should be freedom of the press. And uh, yeah, this was crushed from the outside. And had it not been crushed, uh, things could have gone very differently because the dream is always to reform those Stalinist um, communist states and democratise them and turn them into actual democratic socialist state yeah and
1: um yeah just like the as I was saying the bit of the pattern of, of both the Prague Spring and May 1968 although May 1968 was much, a much different kind of event a, a because um, France was a capitalist country um and the re- resistance was primarily led by the Trotskyists and the Maoists at the time and the students um the, just like the, the Prague Spring was crushed by Stalinists and May 1968 was basically crushed as a result of the Stalinist Party at the time, the Communist Party of France, basically just accommodating to the capitalist party at the time to mm. just crush, basically stop the movement from going too radical. Mm. Um, now, right. we unfortunately, should... we're really late on time. Um, yeah, we're going to wrap it up. So, yeah, thanks for, all of our, thanks for all our listeners and thank all... Um, thanks to our guests. And, yeah, stay tuned for all the latest updates. Probably should check the news uh, for a big update on the leadership spill in the Liberal Party and see mm-hmm. where that goes. Right, good goodbye everyone.
2: your popcorn.
0: <laughs> this brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.